Hi, I'm Charles Wyckoff, and it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with a good friend and colleague, Kuros Rizai. He is the Chief Medical Officer at Iveric Bio. He's also a practicing retina surgeon at Illinois Retina Associates and Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Rush University. Kuros, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. All right, Kuros, so you are a man of many talents, right? You're a successful medical and surgical retina specialist. You were the creator, I think, of, of Retinoz, which is this phenomenal collection of surgical videos of the last decade plus. I've learned a lot from those videos. Um, and now you're chief medical officer at a well-known biopharmaceutical company with multiple products in, in development. Um, you do a lot. And I'd love to talk about a couple of these, but let's start with your role at Iveric Bio. Um, what, what do you do there as chief medical officer? And, and tell me about that experience. Um, thank you, Charlie, for this opportunity. So I've been with the company for about five years. I originally started as a consultant and then transitioned into uh, becoming the uh, chief medical officer. And I was mainly involved in developing the pipeline in the past few years. As you know, we have Zimura, which is a complement C5 inhibitor for geographic atrophy. And following also added an HTO1 inhibitor also for geographic atrophy. And in addition to that, then we added few gene therapy uh, assets uh, for inherited retinal diseases. As you know, gene therapy is, uh, is one of the hottest topics in the field, especially in retina, the eye is the ideal organ for gene delivery because you prevent any systemic exposure. You have um, immune privilege, so it limits any inflammatory response you may have. So I think it's a great incubator for any new gene therapy. And you know, there are over 250 genes with retinal diseases and currently we have only treatment for one of them. So the field is wide open. So we decided to venture into gene therapy. And this worked out as a collaboration with scientists at UPenn and U Florida. They're, you know, University of Pennsylvania has a very large retinal degeneration center. And U Florida is obviously the father of gene therapy in general. And we have a leading compound, the IC100, for rhodopsin-mediated autosomal dominant RP, which we are planning to go into patients next year. And this is an interesting disease. This is the first time for a gene therapy in autosomal dominant disease. And here, what you need to do is, you know, the host rhodopsin is actually toxic. So what you need to do is your construct needs to shut down the toxic rhodopsin and then replace it with a healthy transgene. And that's what this construct does. It does both in a single construct, which we are very excited about, you know, the, um, so this is one of the most common forms of RP. And currently, there is no treatment available. The following that, we have a construct IC200 for best disease. Uh, again, both autosomal recessive and potential autosomal dominant that we are also uh, doing um, IND enabling studies and we're planning to go into patients next year. Uh, one of the limitations for gene therapy or using AAV vectors for gene therapy is the size of a transgene. You know, there's only less than 4.8 kilobases that you can fit inside a, a vector. And that's why many larger orphans like Stargard disease, LCA10, Usher, you cannot deliver the transgene. And what we did was we initiated a collaboration with University of Massachusetts 
with two uh, phenomenal scientists. Uh, one is Dr. Guamping Gao, who is the, actually was the recent president of American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy and also Hemant Kana. And what they do is you engineer these transgenes, make it smaller so it fits inside the vector, but still makes the functional protein. And uh, we're gonna announce the, um, the IC for the uh, LCA10 early next year, what the construct is gonna be, and also provide some updates on Stargard and Azure. So as you can see, some exciting uh, technologies that we're You've working on, and hopefully we can bring these to patients in the near future. So how do you prioritize? I mean, you, you described at least five major programs there, all of which would be incredibly valuable introductions to clinical practice around the country and around the world. How do you, how do you have the bandwidth for that? Well, it works, obviously, it goes based on the stage they are in. Obviously, the most advanced is Zimura in geographic atrophy, which is a large indication. We are currently doing a phase three trial. The h one is further behind. It's gonna go IND enabling into filing IND later next year. You know, those other ones are further behind and the timing just yeah. sets the, um, the uh, priority on how quickly they move forward. Yeah. So if you don't mind, let's, let, let's talk about your lead compound, Zamora. You have you had strong data in your phase 2B slash 3 gather one trial, and now you're enrolling a confirmatory trial. And, and what's, your, what's your runway there? Like when, when do you think um, that that could possibly be commercially available? Uh, you know, the, uh, we have not said uh, currently publicly uh, any guidance regarding the uh, enrollment, but as you know, we have started enrollment uh, back in June. And, uh, you know, the due date for the primary endpoint, the duration is one year. So I let you and your audience to calculate when potentially it will become available. But I don't think it's not too far away. And, you know, before you know it, hopefully we have it enrolled and moving. But obviously, you know, there are challenges because of COVID and everything else. But I think the, we, one of the things we experience as you being one of the key examples of it is that retina specialists were very good in adapting to the whole COVID situation. Mm, and, you know, and the challenges and, you know, people doing all yeah. the masking and so forth. So yeah. I think we are in a much better shape than where we were back in March, for example. So speak of that. So you, you've got this hat that you wear very well as a CMO, but you're also still a practicing retina physician, right? How, how, do, you, how do you balance that? I mean, do you sleep much, Ruth? You know, there is no such thing as balance, but it's only so many hours. <laughs> I think the key part is to be passionate about what you do and enjoy what you do. And that's basically, and I think being a retina specialist is very helpful because I really know how my colleagues feel, how what's going yeah. on in the field at the same time that you're developing something. Yeah. So you, I think, Kuros, you, you made a jump in industry and, you know, many of us in the field think about it. And obviously there've been many other physicians that have made that transition, some part-time, some full-time. Um, what advice would you have for other clinicians out there, whether they're in private practice or whether they're a university practice that have an idea or want to get involved in industry? What, what advice do you have for them if they're looking at making that transition? I think, I mean, um, I think at the beginning, you know, you work generally as a consultant to just feel and see how you like it. Do you like working with the industry? You would like to be involved. And I think from then on, I think the issue is usually what you're passionate about and what you like. I think that is the one point I'd like to express. You, you, want, you need to be passionate about it. Um, yeah. And if you are, then 
you'll find a way of doing it. I think that should be the, the goal. The Thank you. And it, it, sorry, what did you say? I said the guiding, what guides one should yeah. be the passion. And if you are never exposed to it, you start, you know, you do clinical trials, you can get involved with industry through that, through that situation. And then you start consulting and then you see, and you get more and more involved and see if that is something one likes to do. And yeah. how much does one like to do that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you clearly li live by that example. So for our audience, explain to us the difference between a chief medical officer and a chief scientific officer. Is there a distinction there? It all depends. You know, it depends on the size of the company. You know, when you are in a biotech company, especially in a smaller companies, many times you wear multiple hats, especially at the beginning, you know, um, so a few years ago, we did not have a chief scientific officer. And then last year we had, we hired a new uh, chief scientific officer. The chief medical officer is mainly involved in the medical aspects of, you know, if you're doing clinical trials and the, this clinical trial design, execution, regulatory, these kind of things. The chief scientific officer is more involved in the preclinical aspect. Um, for example, IND enabling studies, talk studies, or if you're developing a compound, if you're collaborating like with a university to, over, to oversee those kind of activities. But many times there can be overlap uh, between the two. Kuros, thank you for your time. Very insightful. Look forward to the journey ahead. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. This was great.